Good afternoon, everyone. Can I be heard at the back? Good, thank you. So uh, it's a great pleasure to be back at Durham University. I've spent more time here than I ever expected to, and it's always been a pleasure. So uh, my talk is called Faith, Imagination, and the Space Between the Grace of Creative Writing. Uh, when I checked it yesterday, I thought it probably runs about 45 minutes. And given uh, the, our time frame, that may prevent you challenging me immediately after the paper, but I'm around for the whole talk. So. So, so, as I survey the range of topics to be addressed in the short span of this remarkable gathering, I wonder what I might do in my own presentation to somehow set the scene. I'm not a creative writer or artist or musician. I have only the slightest grasp on the history of Catholic writing, and I am not Irish. <laughs> I am, in fact, if not a descendant of Lancashire recusants, at least one of the latest in a long line of those who waited upon them. If my ancestors never sheltered a fugitive priest, they probably built the secret room in which he hid. I am, by profession, as Paul said, a theologian, but I will try not to be too heavy-handed about that as I go through this. To the degree that I fail, uh, it will be because I want to talk about grace, the grace of God as it is apparent in the arts in general, and fiction in particular, and the way in which a Catholic understanding of grace leads to a particular way of appreciating literature, and perhaps of writing it. My stress is on the reader, and in thinking about what is going on in the act of reading serious fiction, reading as a Catholic, or reading what is or purports to be Catholic fiction. With two corollaries. First, that reading as a Catholic is both identical in structure to the act of a secular reader, while significantly different in its therapeutic effect. And second, that the structural similarities between the act of reading and the act of faith should be consciously of importance to the Catholic reader and subliminally valuable even to her secular counterpart. Now, I'm struck by the difference between the historical period defined in the subheading to our conference and that in the subheading to a book that many of us have read and that is surely germane to our conversations, he incurs the Catholic revival in English literature. Kerr chose, I never know how to pronounce, is it Kerr or Carr? Uh, uh. Carr, thank you. Carr chose to begin his study in 1845 and to end in 1961. We in this conference begin at more or less the same moment but continue to the present day. Carr's choice of 1845 is, of course, the year of Newman's conversion. His end date is the year in which Evelyn Wall published the third in his Men at Arms trilogy, Unconditional Surrender, the title of which Carr believes may in part have been a, a prescient reference to the impending Second Vatican Council, which for Wall constituted, and I quote, the buggering up of the Catholic Church. <coughs> Carr also chose 1961 because it was for him the beginning of secularization, the end of Britain as a Protestant country, 
and the terminus of both the Counter-Reformation and Tridentine Catholicism. And this is where my questions begin. The six writers upon whom Carr focuses are a very disparate bunch. Newman, Hopkins, Belloc, Chesterton, Green, and Wall. But they are united in his view by their attachment to the ordinariness of the day-to-day -day life of the church. If we grant Carr's thesis, and I personally am not so sure that what divides these six is not more significant than what unites them, we surely also can see that if any of this persisted into the last 60 years of our conference focus, it did so in the form of nostalgia. For better or worse, and perhaps both, what makes a Catholic today has changed enormously from what was true in the century or so that Carr reviewed. The hard facts of Catholic certitude and the focus on age-old rituals have largely waned, to be replaced by concern for what we share with those of other faiths and none. War hated its advent, but the substitution of dialogue for difference was unstoppable. This sea change has consequences for what might count as a Catholic novel and even more for what Charles Taylor has called the Catholic imaginary. So as we proceed here, I want to raise questions more than provide answers, and they are for the most part questions about how the last 60 years, the years Ian Park did not consider, might have changed the way in which we need to talk about Catholics and literature. Catholic readers are evidently people of faith, so the first question is how, if at all, the possession of faith, Catholic faith at that, affects the way in which they read any serious fiction at all. So this will require a brief description of how the act of faith has come to be understood in the century and a half under consideration at our conference, and in particular how it tends to be seen today. My contention will be that the way it has changed makes it more rather than less like what we are doing when we encounter a literary text. A second question is more purely literary. I will ask what is involved in the act of reading fiction, and I will open up the question by considering the role of what I call the space between. That is, the space between the reader and the text in which the imagination is at work and at play, both revealing and creating meaning. The third and final question I want to pose is what this might mean for the way in which we read today as Catholics, and of course, what the consequences are for the state of <coughs> present-day Catholic fiction. If it is true, as I shall have proposed for your consideration, that the contemporary Catholic understanding of the act of faith exhibits much the same structure as that seen in the act of reading fiction, then what follows? In both faith and reading, the space between is crucial, and the consequences for reading Catholic fiction and for Catholics reading fiction may be quite considerable. So for some time now, I've been interested in examining what one might call the tectonics of the act of faith and of the act of reading and I believe that this may be the direction in which to move, both to make sense of what has changed since Vatican II and what has remained the same. Evidently, both reading and believing involve intellect, emotion, imagination, and the willingness to live with ambiguity. 
But is there something about the structure of each that invites reflection on the relationship between the two activities? What is there for us to learn from a comparison as people of faith, as critical and sensitive readers, or indeed as both? The American writer and indefatigable teacher of undergraduate students, Mark Edmondson, argues in his book, Why Read, that, and I quote, humanism is the belief that it is possible for some of us, and maybe more than some, to use secular writing as the preeminent means for shaping our lives. He added the perhaps surprising observation for an agnostic that the most consequential questions for an individual life are related to questions of faith. I suppose that what I'm doing here is turning things around and asking if in fact there is all that much difference between the struggle to shape one's life and the struggle to believe. Like Edmondson, I believe that questions of faith and great fiction can conspire together in the search for meaning, even perhaps for some notion of transcendence. And the fact that I believe that this is as likely to happen in the work of secular authors as in those who are people of faith is, I contend, a distinctly Catholic point of view. So the case I will make here is that all creative writing is somehow engaged with transcendence, that reading great fiction can shed light on the structure of the act of faith, and indeed that the structure of the act of faith might help us to understand how great literature influences us. Once we step away from Catholic fiction that is simply apologetic, or that sets out just to recall the ways of an earlier age, what is going on in Catholic fiction, I believe, is different from the best of secular fiction, primarily for the language in which it is expressed and the worldview on which it rests. Maybe this is what Simone Weil was saying in her own way when she asserted, uh, and I quote, all art of the highest order is religious in essence. Of course, this does not mean that all creative artists are consciously pursuing the one, the true, the good, and the beautiful, but something is going on. And Virginia Woolf, a most secular writer, was surely hinting at it when she declared, these are her words, I'm certain that the only meanings that are worth anything in a work of art are those that the artist himself knows nothing about. Even closer to my purpose, it is wonderful to be able to call Martin Scorsese to the witness stand. In a recent essay on Shusaku Endo's silence, which, as I'm sure you know, he made into a fine but underappreciated film, he was sure, and again, these are his words, every truly great work of art orients you to what isn't there what can't be seen or described or named. So now, um, those of you not of theological persuasion will have to be patient for a brief consideration of the development of the notion of the act of faith. I promise you brief. <clears throat> so among the countless human tragedies of World War I, the greatest loss to the world of Catholic theology was certainly the death of Pierre Rousselot. Born in 1878, he became a Jesuit in 1895, wrote two dissertations on the intellectualism of St. Thomas and on love in the Middle Ages, which were both eventually published, was given the chair of dogmatic theology at the Institut Catholique in Paris at the age of 31, 
was pulled out for military service at the outset of the Great War and was killed in battle in April of 1915. His writings on faith are contained in two short essays on the eyes of faith and another in a response to critics of his position written a couple of years later. Now, what Rousselot saw so clearly was that attempting to establish the chronological priority of knowledge or will in reaching faith was doomed to failure, arguing instead that all components of the act of faith are always already at work together. Faith and the intellectual ascent that is simultaneous with the act of faith are a vision, he thought, a sudden seeing that is possible only because of the light of God that shines upon us. In this light, the eyes of faith are opened. The light of faith is the free gift of God's grace, but of course it is not magical. The gift of grace has to be understood, he thought, in terms of human psychology. To take one of his analogies, it's a bit like turning to Shakespeare's Hamlet, which we have read or seen many times with great enjoyment, but without truly grasping the meaning of the whole. And this time around, having something like what the ethicist Paul Ramsey calls the aha moment. As Ramsey saw it, we get it when the penny drops or the light goes on. Where does this sudden insight come from? Rousselot would say with Aquinas that it arises from the synthetic activity of the intellect, that which allows us to see the whole as whole and that this is the light of faith given to us by a free act of divine grace. Rousselot concludes that nothing stands in the way of our affirming with St. Thomas that it is the light of faith that shows that we must believe. Now, in the century that has come and gone since Rousselot wrote, reflection on the act of faith in major sectors of Catholic and Protestant thought has come to emphasize the impact of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ as its instigation and motivation. The personalist term in the theology of the act of faith understands faith to occur as a response to a call or claim upon the individual. For faith to occur, the call obviously cannot compel and must be met by a free response. The response cannot be irrational, but is primarily located in the act of the will, a yes to the perceived call or claim. And in this moment of the act of faith, the place where it happens is somehow between the believer and the divine. We never see God directly, and the act of faith is faith in a reality that we cannot either entirely comprehend or absorb. Somehow, the faith to which the believer comes has occurred as the result of an encounter somewhere between the believer and the divine. But where? Is it possible that the encounter that leads to the act of faith might have considerable similarity to the encounter with the truth in a work of literature? While they are not going to be identical, there are several respects in which they have some affinity. The first and most important is surely that both are encounters with claims to truth. In faith, the believer somehow comes into contact, mediated though it must be, with the one, the true, the good, and the beautiful. 
in our literary adventures, to the degree that truth is somehow present in the text, to that degree so is the one, the true, the good, and the beautiful. A second affinity is that entry into the claim of the text in some way reorients the individual, more radically in the faith response, but really enough, and sometimes very significantly, in a response to the truth of fiction. Which of us is the same after reading Dostoevsky? And third is the recognition of the tension between appropriation and interpretation. The one who comes to faith and the one whose imagination is enriched in reading a great work of fiction want to share what they have experienced and cannot entirely successfully do so. This is obviously not in the case of fiction. People differ in their evaluation of novels, sometimes dramatically, but always at least a little. And there always remains the epistemological problem of how I know that I agree fully with my friend on what this book means. But it is also true for faith. Of course, those in any community of faith work on the assumption that they share the faith with their fellow Catholics but they do not know with certainty that the sharing is complete or even substantial. And there's plenty of evidence in today's Catholic world that faith may be appropriated very differently from one person to another or one generation to another, even perhaps from one bishop to another. Now let me turn to uh, exploring a little bit this idea of the space between in somewhat more detail. The Catholic religious imagination is often referred to as a sacramental imagination precisely because of the particular way that the Catholic tradition understands the creation-incarnation relationship, that it leads to the belief that everything in the created order can be a means of encountering the divine. Nothing in creation is of itself excluded from sacramentality, though anything in creation can be perverted from its truth. Fiction, whether its authors or readers know it or not, exists within this sacramental universe. And serious fiction, even that which is written by atheists, or even for the purpose of undermining religious faith and promoting secularity insofar as it is true, somehow reveals something of the divine because there can be no separation between God and truth. Moreover, the creative artist who is a person of faith is looking in the work of art only for truth and pursuing that search for truth wherever it takes her. Thus, the words of the contemporary American novelist Alice McDermott echoing Graham Greene that, and I quote, I am not a Catholic novelist, but rather a novelist who is a Catholic. This is surely something of what Flannery O'Connor meant by her insistence that imposing orthodoxy on fiction is impossible. Our sense of what is contained in our faith, she wrote, is deepened less by abstractions than by an encounter with mystery in what is human and often perverse. And if you've read Flannery O'Connor, you know that word perverse uh, comes to mind very rapidly. She argued that Catholics are often poor readers, 
perhaps especially of her own work. She was very sensitive to that. Because they liked, she said, the instant answer, and fiction doesn't have any. The fiction writer, she thought, does something akin to scripture. Her words again. St. Gregory wrote that every time the sacred text describes a fact, it reveals a mystery. And this is what the fiction writer on his lower level attempts to do also. In her recent book, Why I Read, The Serious Pleasure of Books, Wendy Lesser includes a chapter entitled The Space Between. Here, Lesser looks at the many kinds of gaps left by authors in their texts, <clears throat> sometimes intentionally, sometimes accidentally, and sometimes forced upon them by narrow-minded editors. The best illustrations in Lesser's discussion occur in poetry where she writes the kind of connection that is usually essential to our understanding of what is happening has been purposely removed. So we are drawn by the mysterious and enigmatic character of poetry into a space left open for us to search out what the poem leads us to. But there are surely analogous processes in substantial works of prose literature, especially in the novel, since being able to reach beyond the surface of the text is almost a definition of literary substance. The space between that interests us then in prose or poetry is the space between the reader and the text, the place and time where the signals in the text and the imagination of the reader conspire together to illuminate the enigmas of human life. To put this in a more Catholic vocabulary, we could say that when the reader enters this space, he or she is claimed by the text. Whether poetry or prose, the text opens up a world or a sacred space in which the reader learns something about the workings of grace in her or his soul. Serious fiction, if you allow that phrase, unlike its lighter cousins, is distinguished by the interpretive space that stands between the author and the reader, between actually the text and the reader. It is in this space that the reader is faced with the challenges of the question that the text puts to her or him. Whenever this happens, divine grace is at work, because what the grace of God already present in the individual moves us towards is fuller self-possession as a human being. A similar approach to that of Lesser can be seen in an important distinction made by the German literary theorist Wolfgang Iser, writing about how fiction might differ from purely informational writing, or how real fiction might be separated from merely light reading. One of the central insights of his major work, The Act of Reading, is that the text somehow mysteriously stimulates the reader to a creative act in which meaning emerges from the interplay between the subjectivity of the reader and the objectivity of the text. The meaning does not reside in the text, still less in the authorial intent, but is surfaced through the imaginative act of reading. Otherwise, of course, we only have two options. Either we would confine readers to puzzling out the one and only meaning of the text, and that the one the author intended, or open interpretation to an anarchic frenzy of subjectivity in which absolutely any appropriation at all is of equal value and consequence as any other. 
The aesthetic object for Isa is not the text itself, but the product of reading it. The aesthetic object emerges in the interplay between reader and text, and this can only occur, though he does not use this phrase, in a space between the text and the reader. Turning from the critic and the theorist to a practitioner, something akin to this seems to have been imagined by Henry James, specifically in his preface to the New York edition of The Golden Bowl. In this preface, James is examining the relationship between the author and the novels, which in this case he wrote in the past, and which he is now rereading for purposes of criticism. For James, the significance of the novel does not lie in the story, not even in the characters, but in the matter, his word, that lies behind the text. The author's work consists in creating a narrative that somehow gives expression to the matter without ever surfacing it. The reader's and writer's relationship to the matter is accessed through story, both plot and character, while it is never entirely uncovered. This matter, what in the end the story is actually about, is never finally clear to writer or reader. The story itself is a means, <coughs> a mode of access to the ever mysterious and unattainable matter. The author will succeed by presenting the story in such a way that the reader's imagination is, dare we say, inspired to go beyond the surface to some access to the matter, probably without ever realizing that this is happening. To illustrate this, we can note the concern Henry James expressed about the illustrations to the Golden Bowl, which graced the New York edition. He and his photographer went to great pains not to illustrate the story at all, not to provide likenesses of the characters in the story or illustrations of incidents, because they would fix the reader's attention on the surface of plot and character, they would hinder careful reading, and because they would inevitably reflect the author's conceptions, they would frustrate the creativity of the reader. As James puts it, these are his words, the author's own garden remains one thing, and the garden he has prompted the cultivation of at other hands becomes quite another. The second issue of interest in this same preface lies in James's use of the term the absolute to designate that which we may encounter in reading or rereading the text. Not apparently, not indeed for its apparently religious resonances, but in fact because he seems not to intend to invoke the category of transcendence at all. James reaches this point in his close examination of the notion of revision. Important, of course, because for the New York edition of his works, he made significant changes to many of the novels and he perhaps felt the need to justify them. This, these are his, you probably tell these are his words, because it's Henry James. This infinitely interesting and amusing act of reappropriation with its exhilarating freedom seems to him I quote again, almost as enlivening or at least momentous as to a philosophic mind a sudden large apprehension of the absolute. What could be more delightful, he adds, than to enjoy a sense of the absolute in such easy conditions? 
and he moved backwards and forwards between absolute with a capital A and a small a. And uh, this absolute is another way he has of referring to the mysterious matter of the picture. Evidently, he is not interested in claiming contact with God or the transcendent or even the capital A absolute. This mysterious absolute, while it is apprehended or sensed, is never actually possessed. Nor, equally importantly, is it arrived at by the exercise of reason. Reason or the imagination can perhaps prepare the ground, but the absolute, if it has any reality at all, cannot be commanded. What is so exciting for James is this renewed encounter with the matter of the fiction, an encounter with a mystery that can never finally be comprehended. And so to the third and last uh, section of this paper, um, coming more to the direct issue of uh, reading, reading Catholic fiction and Catholics reading fiction today. So in this final section of the paper, excuse me a moment. In this final section of the paper, I want to co connect my thoughts on the act of faith and the act of reading to the large topic of Catholics and fiction. I am deliberately avoiding the phrase Catholic fiction because its meaning is always ambiguous and often quite trivial. It is ambiguous because it is not clear whether it refers to the faith convictions of the author, the religious dress of the story, the worldview of the leading characters, or some dreadful apologetic purpose. And it is trivial when it can be identified as one or more of these purposes. If there is a value to the term Catholic fiction, it can only be that the text which we read somehow offers nourishment to a claim to faith. And it is surely immediately clear that lots of so-called Catholic fiction does not do this, while much secular fiction does. A number of distinguished American writers, principal among them Paul Ely and Dana Joya, have drawn attention in the last couple of years to what they consider to be the near disappearance either of novels that take questions of faith seriously, which is Paul Ely's argument, or of novels through which the Catholic religious and intellectual tradition continues to be present and respected in the pluralistic convert conversation of American literary culture. Dana Joya thinks that is complimentary. They are puzzled. If Catholics comprise about a quarter of the American public, they ask, why are they not more prominent in the literary arts? Once upon a time they were, and they were respected for it according to Joya. Now the topic of religious faith or the lack of it is largely ignored or ridiculed in Ailey's view. Though it is not their central concern, both authors in their different ways imply that the health of the novel cannot be separated from much deeper questions about the place of religious faith in American life, indeed in American Catholic life. So what happens if we put the concerns of Ailey and and Joya into a larger frame of reference and move away from the parochialism of the American context. There is no doubt that the, quote, Catholic culture that existed in the United States and much of Western Europe through the middle of the 20th century is gone for good. And that fact alone goes a long way towards explaining the demise of its particular literary counterpart. 
Looking forward, however, there are at least three aspects of emerging Catholicism that need to be taken into account in determining the fate of the Catholic novel or of how Catholics read novels. The first takes up the demise of Catholic culture and reflects on what the Flemish sociologist Staff Hellemans has called the emergence of Catholicism as a religionized religion. The second looks to the implications of the theology of grace developed in Vatican II, especially in the decree on the church Lumen Gentium. And the third, taking inspiration from that other great conciliar document, Gaudium et Spes, the pastoral constitution on the church in the world of today, addresses the contemporary phenomenon of Catholicism as a church coexisting in dialogue with other religions and even with the secular world. If these three phenomena are truly components of today's Catholicism, religionized religion, theology of grace, dialogue, if these three phenomena are truly components of today's Catholicism, what does this mean for what a Catholic novel would look like? First, as a novel written against the background of whatever we're going to call Catholic culture, and second, as a novel that in my phrase nourishes the faith of the reader. If, as Paul Ely claims, what are lacking are novels that examine the question of faith in the context of our world, then the concerns of faith will have to appear in literature in a fragmented manner to be true to the way things are. Priestly authority is no longer taken for granted any more than regular worship is an indicator of what it means to be a Catholic. And the lives of today's Catholics are indistinguishable in most respects from those of people of other religious traditions and none. This would seem to enforce a kind of interiority upon the contemporary experience of belief and unbelief. Ours is a much less social world than it once was, whether we're talking about the village, the neighborhood, or the parish. Indeed, for contemporary Catholics, it is often the case that the remains of the culture are less a support to faith than they are a challenge. While the affective support of a living community has waned considerably, clericalism and its attendant lay subservience have evidently had a greater staying power. At the same time, turning back to the Catholic novels of the preconciliar era, it is hard not to be influenced by the knowledge we have now that perhaps we did not have then, that there is a shadow side to the Catholic culture as it was, and to its clerical dimension in particular. This question of Catholic culture is complicated by the movement of Catholicism towards becoming a religionized religion or, in Staff Hellman's words, I quote, a church that has been reduced to the core business of religion. The most important consequence of the dismantling of the Catholic subculture of preconciliar times is that today the connections that Catholics make between their religious faith and practice on the one hand and their daily lives on the other are negotiated as individuals. There is no such thing anymore as the way Catholics vote or perhaps the choices they make about the books and journals they read or the TV shows they favor. When the institutional church in the United States campaigns for religious freedom or against the evil of health insurance covering contraception, its failure to carry most Catholics along with it illustrates this phenomenon of religionization. While practicing Catholics, an unsteady category today, 
obviously continue to find Eucharistic worship to be spiritually fulfilling, they overwhelmingly pay little or no attention to church teaching, however authoritative, that does not conform to their personal convictions. Whether this is a refreshing sign of Christian adulthood or the deplorable evidence of declining faithfulness, it does create a quandary for the Catholic novelist. When religious practice and daily life have little explicit connection to one another, where is the faith that Ailey's novelist ought to be concerned with? And if Catholicism has become religionized, how can, uh, can Gioia's novelists speak out and reflect a Catholic culture that has evaporated? This apparently gloomy assessment can be modified by attention to the second and third aspects of post-conciliar Catholicism, a richer theology of grace and a humbler relationship to the wisdom of other traditions and of the secular world. While there are a number of plausible candidates for the title of principal theme at Vatican II, the idea of grace certainly has to be a favorite. While the complexities of grace have been parsed theologically in every which way, at heart, the term grace simply refers to the loving presence of God. The complexity comes from the academician's lust to count the ways. Moreover, it is because Lumen Gentium takes the grace of God to be universally available that Gaudium et Spes can conclude that there is theological wisdom in the signs of the times and that the secular world may have much to teach the church. If grace is indeed nothing other than the loving presence of God, then novels of faith written by Catholics will have no need to concern themselves with Catholicism at all, though, of course, they may choose to do so. And that would be an argument about Flannery O'Connor, I think, who does not write about Catholics at all, but is taken to be a Catholic novelist. Their objective surely has to be to explore the gracious presence of God and the sinfulness that it confronts in ways that evince the continuity of what we have to call a Catholic way of looking at things. But here the novelist Ron Hansen has warned us that Catholic faith, in quotes, is a slippery category and, he says, probably more functional in the classroom than it is in criticism. He made this comment in an interview immediately after declaring, I quote, that what perhaps finally distinguishes a Catholic fiction writer from all others is the yes and rather than the yes but approach to their subject. But he went on to ask, doesn't that fit the fiction of Eudora Welty and Saul Bellow? While Hansen is on good theological ground in identifying yes and as distinctive of the Catholic analogical approach to life, it is not the case that only Catholics approach life this way. Anyone who thinks that human beings and human society are better understood as a complex mix of good and evil or sin and grace, and not divided between good and evil or sin and grace, belongs to this Catholic camp. If you have been lucky enough to read about the sinful saints in Gloria Naylor's Bailey's Cafe, <coughs> or are a devotee of Louise Penny's detective fiction set in a little Quebec village of Three Pines, or you remember affectionately the world of Sicily, Alaska in the TV series Northern Exposure, you will know exactly what this means. Uh, if you haven't familiar with any of those, ask me later. <laughs> <laughs> 
As George, as George Bremenow famously ended his diary of the country priest, everything is grace. What is sometimes hard to keep in mind is that a serious writer who is a Catholic is not going to set out to write anything other than the best novel of which he or she is at that time capable. It is inconceivable that its location or its characters, I'm sorry, it is conceivable that its location or its characters or some of them might be Catholics. They equally well might not, and neither choice makes it more rather than less likely that the result will be a Catholic novel. If it turns out to be a Catholic novel, it will be because of a particular sensibility that informs whatever the story is about. The sensibility cannot dictate what the story is about, still less how it will work itself out. But if it is clearly present, then it doesn't matter if the topic is Joan of Arc or Joseph Stalin, or the setting is a beach vacation or an abortion clinic. By the same token, a serious reader who is a Catholic is not the least bit likely to gravitate to reading Catholic fiction simply because it is Catholic, whatever that might mean. It has to be good literature. Thus, Flannery O'Connor, once again, one of her better known phrases, I think, this time warning reader and writer alike, and I quote, the Catholic novelist doesn't have to be a saint. He doesn't even have to be a Catholic. He does, unfortunately, have to be a novelist. <laughs> but the important point, it seems to me, is that if it is good literature that calls the reader into question, it can only nourish his or her attitude of life. Coming back to Carr's choices, <coughs> I have to say that Newman's fiction leaves me cold, whereas Hopkins' poetry does the opposite, and I'm willing to bet that the reading public at large would be in substantial agreement. Belloc and Chesterton as novelists were period pieces and have little to say to us today, though the path to Rome or Chesterton as a biographer continued to charm. And I certainly cannot agree with Carr's conclusion that Green's reputation will fade in comparison with that of Wall. Let me end with a few comments on the therapeutic value to Catholics of reading great literature, Catholic or not. Religion which does not promote and inspire the use of the imagination is religion which impedes faith. To the degree that it does so, it is simply about itself, not about faith in the holy that lies beyond it. And it does make one wonder about the Catholicism of Carr's chosen few, which, with the exception of Hopkins, is much more about the church than it is about the gospel or faith in God. Too much of formal religion claims more than it can possibly know, and at times seems to set rules that not only delimit the adherents' range of possibilities, but also operate as if it and not the Holy Spirit is in charge. The freedom of the spirit and the freedom of the individual believer's religious imagination are not high on the priority list of the doctrinal or moral traditions of the church. If the tradition moves forward and if there is genuine development of doctrine in the church, which can hardly be denied, it is often and rightly said to occur through the voice of the whole church or the census fidelium. What is perhaps not so often noticed is that the sense of the faithful is a flow of the acts of the religious imagination. If it is correct, as I believe, that the current weakness of Western religion in general and Catholicism in particular is a result of the failure to encourage imagination, 
then whatever feeds the imaginative power of the believer, whatever nourishes faith, will be support to the individual and perhaps more importantly, a source of strength to a religious tradition in serious need of new sources of energy. Here in the end is where the arts in general and fiction in particular have profound therapeutic potential. If we are convinced by Henry James's description of the matter that lies beyond the text, beyond the author's grasp and the reader's total comprehension, then we can even say that serious literature is always a kind of theological reflection, even when it is ostensibly far from what we would consider to be the usual patterns of religious thought. We may even be able to maintain this for literature that deliberately sets out to avoid any sense that it means anything beyond itself. Virginia Woolf, perhaps, comes to mind there. Whatever stimulates the imagination moves the reader into the formation of an aesthetic object whose implicit and often subliminal endpoint is a vision of the whole. And even a nihilistic work of fiction can be grist to the mill of the religious imagination, so long as its power is in stimulating the imagination, and so long as it resists mere didacticism. Which is, of course, equally true for fiction written with religious perception or overtones. That which nourishes, nourishes the imagination nourishes faith. Catholic fiction can continue to do this, in the way that the literary giants of the past did. But it cannot do it in the profoundly centripetal way in which they achieved their effect. Like its readers, Catholic fiction today, for profound theological reasons, needs to be centrifugal, to, to be oriented to the dynamism of sin and grace in all that is not the church. That is the way in which it will stimulate the imagination and nourish what Catholics call faith, but which also goes by the name, the meaning of the whole. As Pierre Rousselot might have said were he alive today, we look upon the world and seek the meaning of the whole through the eyes of faith. But the eyes of faith encounter the grace of God everywhere, perhaps in a special way where writers struggle with giving expression to the mystery, to the matter at the heart of things. Thank you.